Hello and welcome to episode 205 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. Remember to follow Turkey Book Talk over at Twitter slash X, Instagram and or Facebook. I personally am also now on Blue Sky as well. So if you're also on there, do follow along, say hello. In this episode, we hear from Alp Yenen, who is the co-editor, along with Eric Jan Zurker, of a remarkable new volume, A Hundred Years of Republican Turkey, A History in a Hundred Fragments, published by Leiden University Press. The book and this episode coincide neatly with the centenary of the founding of the Republic of Turkey, which I'm sure you are already aware has just passed. The book is a rich potpourri made up of 100 short chapters written by over 70 scholars, 100 fragments from throughout the last 100 years dealing with political, social and economic moments that have in different ways been significant in shaping Turkey as we know it today. The chapters are all short and disciplined but taken together. The book is a gargantuan piece of work looking both at what happened at the centre but also not neglecting those groups, religious, ethnic and other minorities left out of the Republican project. It's a treasure trove of material, neither celebratory nor condemnatory, very much befitting the complexity of the subject matter. And as you'll hear, we dip our toe into that treasure trove to mix metaphors in our conversation. But before we get started, let me appeal once again for support. This podcast does take a lot of time and effort to prepare, edit and piece together. And I do need listeners support, your support to be able to keep doing it. Since launching the podcast back in 2015, we've given a platform to researchers and authors of books related to Turkish history, politics, society, literature and the arts. It is extremely rewarding to put the podcast together and publish an episode every couple of weeks and I sincerely hope it remains useful for everyone who listens. Turkey Book Talk is completely independent with no institutional links, no sponsorships. It depends 100% on the goodwill of listeners like you. So if you are in a position where you can support, please consider doing so via Patreon. Consider becoming a Turkey Book Talk member. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member isn't just a nice thing to do, it also gets you some pretty good extras. Those extras include a terrific discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Hundreds of Turkey and Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury are available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. As a member you get a special code to use at the online checkout and you can use it to purchase physical books pre-orders or ebooks. Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, in addition to all that, I send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, 3 euros or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, 3 euros or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But now on to our conversation with Alp Yenen. The book includes 10 
diverse chapters for each decade leading up to today. So as much as anything, it's a really impressive feat of organization. Arranged chronologically, the book obviously therefore starts at the beginning with the founding of the Republic in 1923, a century ago with the Treaty of Lausanne. Of course, different constituencies in Turkey today have radically different perspectives on that foundational moment, with many seeing it as a triumph for the Turkish national forces, but others seeing it as a melancholy defeat, a final nail in the coffin for the Ottoman Empire. So I started by asking Alp Yenen how we should think about such bitter disputes that rage over fundamental historical issues. Very complicated, uh, but excellent questions. And I think I, I think there are two questions there. So the the one the one is about what this fragmented reality of of Turkey's history tell us, so that we have these these diverse movements and moments throughout Turkish history, and they seem to be going different directions, but nevertheless they seem to be kind of also working together in a mysterious way. And this, I think, in our attempt to grasp this fragmented reality of Turkey's history, the format of our book was very helpful. Because let's say if if I had decided to write a monograph about the 100 years as a single author, and this is true for, for any of our contributors, I guess, now I would have to make way more stronger choices and be way more selective in order to create a kind of create a cohesive narrative that inevitably becomes very linear, that inevitably uh, leaves out certain aspects and highlights others. Hence, the the very structure of the book and the very open-ended and organic way of, of editing it, allowing the contributors to come up with their own ideas, this helped us to, to, to demonstrate the complexity of Turkey, of Turkey's history. And by complexity, what I mean is that that you cannot really reduce it to its single pieces. You cannot really add up all the single pieces and the sum of it is Turkey. No, the sum of the parts are are way greater. And this is the complexity of it. So, But it's still, you can go through and read these, these various and different fragments of Turkey's history but you get a sense of understanding and you, you see that oh, uh, how they are in a way connected. I hope and I'm confident that we will, uh, by reading the book, our readers will be able to kind of grasp and, and get a sense of Turkey's history and, and its, its varieties and its, uh, and its complexities. So that's, I think, to answer the first part of your question. The second part is Turkey's history is nevertheless, of course, and still, contentious and this is certainly an important matter in uh, for for turkish studies so the fact that in turkey and also turkish studies and perhaps as the name suggests it's a very self-occupied branch so it's it has been very much inward looking looking into turkey and explaining turkey with turkey so it's like if you're explaining certain developments then you're going back in history in turkey and you have this kind of these foundational moments whatever you suggest them to be whether it's the ottoman legacy whether it's the young turk era whether it's the Kemalist state formation or uh, let's say the, the crimes that have been committed by the state in certain periods that have shaped a certain trajectory of Turkey. And in most cases, this, this trajectory is considered to be kind of very singular. And this is certainly this is certainly the case because Turkey's foundational moments, and, and this starts certainly from the, the late Ottoman period, and also encompassing the, the interwar period, the so-called Kemalist period, it is, of course, it's a period of violence. It's a period of reform, it's a period of collapse, and it's a period of foundations. It's a period of 
saving and it's a it's a period of destroying so it's a you have these these two dimensions the 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 janus phase in all moments of turkey's foundational history and therefore this it is naturally contentious as such but i want i would not think that this is very exceptional for turkey we should be careful about considering that turkey's foundational moment is exceptionally flawed or something else, then I think most nation states in their foundational myth are or have been violent and have a have a complex history or let's say a complicated, conflicted history about that period, which might still polarize people, or there are those who have been left out from that history. So I think that here in this case, this is a reality of Turkey's history, but I don't think this makes Turkey exceptional. But it, I think it makes it more interesting and it's, it makes it also kind of also keeps us also busy for uh, me and my many of our uh, my colleagues for, for, for so many decades to work and uncover again and again new aspects of this. Some of those early chapters tackle this question of Ottoman continuity as well. This idea that the Republic was not necessarily a huge break with the past. Actually, the Republic inherited uh, many institutions and, and many other aspects of the state from the discarded Ottoman Empire. And uh, obviously, this is, you know, Ericsson Zurka's one of his uh, major contributions over the years has been to explore this question of how the Republic of Turkey inherited far more from the Ottoman Empire than the, the previous historiography had often assumed, and also inherited far more than any of the other successor states that came into being in the Balkans and the Middle East. You know, the new regime in Ankara basically maintained a lot of the central, provincial and local bureaucracy of the empire, as well as much of its legislation and military structure. So how should we think about this question of the Ottoman legacy and how much of a break the Republic actually represented from what went before? So thank you. Well, thank you that you raised this question uh, specifically. So what we've decided with designing this book is that the, the decision was if we want to focus on the, the centennial, this would mean that we have to start also in 1923. And 1923 is, of course, as being the year of the foundation of the Republic. But we all know, like you said, especially Eric Jan Zürcher's own research, but also my PhD, have focused on, especially on the transitional period, the period of the War of Independence, where you have this overlap of still the Ottoman Empire existing as a government in Istanbul, and then the foundation of the Ankara government with the opening of the Grand National Assembly and so forth. But even beyond that, the Republic certainly inherited also not only the Young Turk era and the reforms and the personnel and the ideology of the Young Turks, but it also uh, inherited the institutions and the bureaucracy and the academies that were founded under Sultan Abdul Hamid. And it also inherited certain intellectual trends and, and also, again, bureaucracy and reforms dating back to, to Tanzimat or even earlier to Mahmoud II, Selim III and the early reforms uh, of the 19th century. So there is, of course, there is an undeniable continuity from empire to republic. So this topic has become so prominent in Turkish studies as a reaction to the Kemalist historiography in its kind of its in its most orthodox variation that had singled out the the revolutionary new foundation of of Turkey in 1923 
kind of uh, a phoenix out of the ashes, I think, uh, the metaphor. So this image of out of nothing and out of destruction emerges this, this, this unique clean slate of Turkey that is revolutionary different, that is uh, unique and so forth and way better. And it's, there's also inherent Orientalism underneath so that the past is not only distant, but it is also Orientalized and so forth. So the continuity thesis very much emerged as a reaction to this orthodox Kemalists or official historiography, whatever, however you want to call it. But I think we have now moved beyond this point. And I think this is now this is now mainstream to, to, to have the continuity. So now we should, I think, now look more into the nuances of, of how far the Kemalists have distanced themselves consciously from uh, the regime before them, what was their motivation, and how far they were successful in changing, let's say, their policies or the institutions or the ideology at hand. So I think we need now, especially in the early decades of the Republic, we need to look in more into these these nuances and look at more as, more uh, more as a transformation because it is not just the old. There are new aspects. There are revolutionary aspects, whether one likes it or not, of the Republican foundation that are building of imperial continuities and imperial foundations, but try to to create something else. Whether they are successful or not is a matter of debate, of course. But I think this transformation needs to be recognized as such. I think one of the major contributions of this book, and especially its design of treating each decade of the Republic and and devoting equal attention to each decade of the Republic, we quickly run through the, the Kemalist era, and we still had eight other decades to deal with. And this is something I think the whole Cold War era, more or less, has been kind of neglected in Turkish studies. And this has to do, of course, with this struggle with Kemalist historiography, struggle with the Kemalist legacy in Turkey, and also the struggle of the continued democracy problems in Turkey that have been explained as resulting out of the Kemalist origins. So hence, by devoting equal attention to each decade, I think we have also provincialized the Kemalist foundations and also were, I think, able to demonstrate that the Cold War period demonstrates the remaking of Turkey. So that it's if we have the making of modern Turkey with the transition from empire to republic, with the Cold War, we certainly have a remaking of modern Turkey as such, uh, to quote our contributor Nicholas Danford's book. And it's subtitle, I think it's the remaking of modern Turkey, if I'm borrowing it correctly. Now, in the introduction, you wrestle with the question of whether Turkey's past 100 years is a success story or not. You write that, quote, the Turkey of 1923, comprised of 13 million people who were predominantly rural, illiterate, destitute and afflicted by poor health, is quite different from the Turkey of today, which has a largely urban, literate population of 85 million and is now a middle income country, even if there is a very high degree of inequality. Public works have turned Turkey into a country that is integrated to an extent that would have been unimaginable in 1923, not to mention 50 years ago. So how should we approach this very thorny and probably unanswerable question of whether Turkey represents 100 years after its founding a success story? Yes, thank you. Thank you for for sharing this quotation. I think I I, I couldn't have paraphrased it better now out of memory. But 
what we have decided to do was that it's not not just a celebration of Republic of Turkey. So yes, you can look on the on the full, look at it as a, as the, the the glass is half full, and you can see all these progress, the modernization, and the change Turkey has done, and the the Turkey also remained to be influential and powerful. Whether this is something positive or not, that can be debated, but it remained to be powerful and relevant in its hundred years. And it has again and again tried to improve itself, and it has a very dynamic population. It has a very dynamic intellectual field, I would say. It has a very, very dynamic political life, to say the least. So it has been on the agenda. But it's not just about celebrating Turkey as as the kind of this model and once again subscribing to a Turkish exceptionalism. To go the other way has valid points, but it is, it is again, also comes with its own limitation. So uh, we could have also decided to to condemn Turkey's trajectory, and I think if you look into the uh, the recent publications coming out on 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 the centennial of the Lausanne Treaty, you see such publications. So there, are, I mean, there are of course uh, like um, nuanced ones, but there are also ones who see this as this kind of this moment of, of that defined this this kind of Turkey Zonderweg, kind of this trajectory of how Turkey made things uh, worse and worse. And you can certainly fill such a narrative with evidence throughout Turkey's history. You will have exclusion, you will have violence, you will have suffering, you will have inequality. So this is, uh, again, creating such a linear narrative which condemns the trajectory of Turkey is possible to do. So we kind of try to balance out these, these two aspects. And I think because they both offer important contributions. So, but that this is not just for the sake of being on the middle. It's because appreciating that the historical reality is is more complex than such linear historiographies. This is the reason, not necessarily in an attempt to appease both sides or anything. And we couldn't have managed to do it to to, uh, to select hundreds chapters and and work with over 70 authors and then have one single narrative of celebration or condemnation define the book from cover to cover that uh, that would have been not democratic at all yeah there's a section in the book that i highlighted where you, you say that turkey today is in many ways a vastly better country than it was in 1923 but it continues to have immense problems with its political system implementation of the rule of law human rights and polarization along ideological and cultural lines this book is neither a celebration nor a condemnation of the republic of turkey on its centennial while the centenary offers a superb opportunity to pause and reflect on the resilience of the republic of turkey we are fully aware of the fact that the history of turkey has had both bright and dark pages which is kind of a neat summary, I thought, of the approach that the book takes. And uh, it kind of gets to this point that it really depends on your perspective and from what position you look at it from. Yes. And, and indeed, this was, I think this was the case throughout Turkish history. So it's just, so if you can say so that Turkey's democracy after its foundation of the Republic, it was celebrated as this modernist project that this kind of this model Muslim nation state and, and, and liberals, uh, uh, communists, uh, fascists, socialists, they all kind of admired this, this, this project. 
but it was it soon also became criticized for its uh, already in 1930s for its uh, for its let's say uh, less democratic aspects of, of dictatorship and rule of law and also uh, also minority affairs already in the 1930s and this goes uh, again and again actually so this is turkey once with the decision to join the the western alliance in early cold war turkey is once again celebrated as such uh, but then again it reveals to be a, a more complicated case than this basic understanding of Turkey once again being this model. And we had it in our very recent history as well. So in our recent history, we have seen Europe celebrating the AKP as a cure to Turkey's inherent problems resulting out of its nation-state formation. But then this promise turned sour very quickly after 2007 or 2010, uh, however you want to see it, or as late as the Gezi Park protests. So it became, so you see these, these moments of hope in regards to Turkey that the people have, both insiders and outsiders, but it has always this kind of the other facet and which, uh, and, and once it is revealed or it is perceived as such then then it it becomes sour so that's even even the single observer can within a decade change change opinion about the promise of democracy in turkey and this has been the case throughout turkish history and that's i think it's an interesting case now on its 100th year we sometimes hear from both insiders and outsiders that basically zero legacy remains of the early republic Obviously, the political system has been transformed, particularly in recent years, by Erdogan. And it's now, according to this argument, almost unrecognizable to those early years. We talk about secularism, religion, numerous aspects of the economy. You know, on so many different levels, it seems that we can barely even talk about this being the same country. So different is the, the current situation from the vision set out by Ataturk with, with all its flaws and all its attractions. Do you think that is a useful way of looking at things or is it too simplistic to compare the current present day situation and say this is nothing like people imagined it would be 100 years ago? Seems a bit of a, a strange way to look at things, but what do you think about that? It is indeed strange, but uh, but it is also unfortunately very common in news reporting and even in academic publications to kind of this this juxtaposition uh, between uh, between Ataturk and Erdogan. And I, and I do, and I share your uh, sentiments that this is a kind of a very kind of simplified and caricaturized way of, of looking into Turkey. And it's like, I mean, you have now highlighted the contrast between those two. So that's how it changed. And there's the other perspective to see, okay, this is actually the, the same in green, kind of green being the color of Islam. So it's like kind of, uh, and I think this is similarly problematic. So you, you are, again, you're explaining Turkey with Turkey. So you're you're taking kind of your references out of the same same continuum. And this, I, I think such, such approaches are are inherently flawed and it you might satisfy certain audiences with such such uh, such contrasts or such this uh, elastic continuations but at the end we have to i think we have to embed those political leaders or turkish governments within their own times so this is i think we need to we need to uh, understand the kemalist era within its own terms in Turkish history and with within the imperial continuities, but also transnationally and globally, have how to place in, uh, and position Kemalist Turkey as part of the interwar world 
and the same is true with with Cold War Turkey. How should we understand the democrat? Uh, let's say the democratization of Turkey. How should we understand the military interventions within the context of the global Cold War? And the same is true with the AKP regime. I think so. This is I think we need to read it again more horizontally. And if we want to trace its its continuities, then we don't need to go back to the interwar period or or the Ottoman period, the AKP periods. Uh, let's say origins at least biographically lies within the Cold War period. I think if we want to connect and compare, it's uh, then it's the, the late Cold War context is I think more illuminating in understanding political debates uh, revolving around the AKP. And then we need to look into AKP within its own terms, how the global order has changed since the uh, since the end of the Cold War, and especially since 9/11 and the global war on on terror and the rise of neoliberalism, neoconservatism, and I think. This perspective is very more useful in embedding Turkish politics within larger within a larger framework. Now, to conclude, the final 100th chapter of the book, which you co-authored, tackles the issue of the name change Turkey to Turkey in English. Now, Turkish officials, when this change was made two years ago, described the UN's approval of uh, Turkey as a tescil which uh, you make the point that that's a term commonly used for registering industrial trademarks. So drawing an analogy there between the nation state and the value of a consumer good, basically using these marketing principles in the realm of international relations. And uh, I thought that was an interesting point about this still quite bewildering episode that people are still trying to get their head around. So two years on from that campaign, we're seeing Turkey used in official correspondence, but also I'm getting the sense in the last few months that it's catching on in some areas of journalism and elsewhere. So what's your reading of the of the state of that campaign, the name change, and why end this collection with that episode? Thank you for this question. Uh, so uh, <laughs> the last uh, the last entry is also the the last one we wrote. So we really waited for it. So we have we collected the uh, 99 entries and then and then we had to come up with because we wanted to finish with something that is let's say from the last years, but also something that is let's say not not something marginal or something occasional or something. And this is of course and we were following the the the, the events and Turkey has been going through. So, I mean this is uh, so so many drastic events. But you know how Turkish politics works. So it's like something happens, and you think, okay, this is this is the beginning of the end, or this is so such a moment. No, I will never forget this moment. And and then two weeks later, something else happens, and it's it's overrides what you have felt or or feared about the previous event. So th- this was a kind of a struggle about how how we should end the book, and then we uh, we came up with the idea that we should write about the name change issue to Turkey. It is a political decision at the end. So this is a political decision we have with AKP, uh, a regime that is actively trying to change the regime of Turkey according to its own vision or visions. And and in doing so, it it has been relying on evoking emotions, popular emotions. And there's a lot of debate how far AKP is 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 nationalist, ultranationalist. How far is it Islamist? How far it's populist and support? And it's 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 all of them because it is trying to to catch the domestic audience of Turkey, the the population of Turkey, through emotions. And AKP has also a history of using emotions also in foreign policy. And here 
the idea of Turkey emerges, the name change issue, which was uh, originally, a, a, I think, a Camelus project from the uh, from the 1990s, who were kind of bothered by this 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 uh, that it's the same word with an ugly ugly bird, and this is, but this issue remained kind of kind of marginal. So it never became such a high it's a high politics matter. And here Erdogan takes this old and forgotten issue. And makes it uh, his own, and and he's uh, he frames it as a rebranding of Turkey, so that the Turkey is a brand, so Tesci, so it has been licensed through the United Nations, and I have asked diplomats how such a such a such an application looks like. So does Turkey need to justify this name change? This Turkey is it a, is it a long letter? They say because of this and this we want to change the name. No, it is actually a kind of a two-liner. So this is we have decided and then we want the name change. So it's just formality actually with the United and United Nations has no other option then to, to acknowledge this if a country changes its its official name they will have to change it so then they do it but in doing so they uh, they are kind of evoking this this emotion and the one emotion i think they're evoking is pride and and pride in terms of nationalism in terms of islam whatever you want to people want to put inside it that fulfills that function also economically let's say if they're using it for turkish brands as made in turkey it's again there is a certain pride there uh and and this is part of akp's project of of changing uh changing not only the surface and infrastructure of turkey but also it's it's very spirit and it's very work look so so well done Chong, the, yeah that was Alp Yenen. Many thanks to him for joining for episode 205. Please remember, we do need your support to keep Turkey Book Talk going, and you can give that support by joining as a member on Patreon. Membership gets you a 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. Do also rate the podcast or write a positive review wherever you listen follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com our twitter facebook or instagram accounts or all of them follow me william armstrong on blue sky recommend turkey book talk to a friend or a foe and i always enjoy hearing from listeners so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com Finally, let me once again remind you to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel for signed up members who want more, and they also publish high quality original on the ground reporting and analysis. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. But until our next episode of Turkey Book Talk in a couple of weeks thank you very much for listening Music